Well, I'd like to keep your Bibles open to Romans 8. We're starting a new series of sermons based on this wonderful chapter. You know, by many, this chapter is considered one of the greatest in all of the Bible. Uh, you know how kids say, this is money? Have you ever heard that? I asked my kids, they, they don't actually say that. So some children somewhere say that. They would say, if something remarkable or excellent, they would say, oh, it's money, or he is money. So I'm not getting any traction with you on that. <laughs> Taylor is tracking, the only person is tracking with me. I'm going to change it a little bit. I'm going to make, make the slang term a little bit more biblical. I'm going to say honey. Okay? This chapter is honey. So when I refer to something remarkable or excellent, I'm just going to say honey. So when you read a particularly a wonderful passage of Scripture, uh, you are now free to say, Romans 8 is honey. Or that prayer meeting, that was honey. That's how you can talk if you want. If you don't want to, that's totally fine. But as you, as you, many of you have read the chapter, of course, Romans 8, as you read it, What's interesting is there are no imperatives, there are no commands, there are no uh, prohibitions, there are no, no rules in this chapter at all. There, there's nothing that is commanded for us to do or forbidden for us to do in Romans 8. The whole chapter is, is a description. It's a description of a life. It's a description of a pretty good life, as, as we'll, we'll learn as we look through it. In fact, I am claiming it is the good life. The good life that's available to us in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is the good life because it's the only life, in my humble opinion, that resolves and addresses all the deepest longings of the human heart. So, acceptance, future, relationship, confidence, all those kind of things that we long for and any human being longs for are addressed in the gospel through Christ and is applied then by the Holy Spirit to our daily lives. So as we're looking at this chapter over the next about two months, so the rest of the summer, we will discover what it means to live the good life. What does it mean? Well, we are going to get doctrinal, of course, because doctrine matters. We're also going to get very practical. And you will see today, as, as we wrestle with how it applies to marriage and friendship and work and, and uh, kids in school, how this good life is lived out in, in normal, ordinary circumstances that all of us can relate to. So today, as our first installment in the series, we're looking at the good life being a life of freedom a life of freedom specifically from condemnation. Our text says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is a life of freedom from condemnation. Now, this is how I'm going to approach this. First, I'll need to convince you that condemnation is a problem, that it's a reality in your life and in my life that we need to be free from. I'm going to show that it's a universal problem. Secondly, 
we'll discover that the problem that we really need to be focused on is behind these problems on the surface. There is a deeper thing we have to get to. There is a problem behind all the problems. Thirdly, we'll look at Jesus as the problem solver. Fourthly, we'll look at the solution in Christ. And lastly, we'll finish by looking at particular applications of the freedom in Christ. If you are taking notes, and you're certainly welcome to do that, you don't have to, here's the outline. Number one, problems. Number two, big problem. Number three, problem solver. Number four, big solution. And number five, practical solutions. Problems, big problem, problem solver, big solution, and then practical solutions. I am really just trying to fit in with all the engineers here in the congregation, so hopefully this, this gets me somewhere today. What are the problems with condemnation? I am well aware that when I say condemnation, some of you, many of you, maybe most of you, are thinking, I don't think it's a problem for me. Frankly, I don't even know what the word means. It sounds like a church word. What does it mean for me? I don't know if I need to be free from that. I'm not sure it's a problem in my life that I long to be free from that will really, really change my life. Well, I'd like to play a game of synonyms. I'm just going to give you a bunch of different words that will explain what condemnation is in our lives and how it plays out. These are all the words that we know all too well. How about guilt? Shame? Insecurity, inadequacy. Ever felt any of those things? Feeling that right now, perhaps, some of us? Those are all internal struggles that all of us are dealing with. That's what we're feeling every day. Here's some more words. These have to do with what we experience in relationships. Rejection. Embarrassment, failure, judgment. Does that ring a bell? You deal with that? Somebody's rejecting you, you're rejecting someone else, you're judging someone else. How about words relating to what is happening in our community, in our culture every day? Racism, bigotry. Hate crimes. Exclusion. That's the cultural aspect. But aren't all those words that I've mentioned, all those realities, just aspects or versions of condemnation? See, I feel guilty or I feel insecure or ashamed or inadequate because I feel that I myself do not measure up to my internal standard. So I am condemning myself. That's why you feel guilty. That's why anybody feels guilty. You're condemning yourself. Your own internal standard is not reached. And you feel inadequate. You feel like you're not measuring up to your own standard. Rejecting and judging others is the same thing as condemning them as failures and losers based on my standards. 
Now I'm applying a standard not to myself internally. I'm just applying it now to everybody else around me. I'm going to reject you if I don't think you, you fit into my worldview or if you don't measure up to my standards. I'm going to judge you if you're doing something that I don't think is right. Whether my standards are correct or not, it doesn't matter. Condemnation happens all the time in relationships. And then, of course, if we extend it out, on the cultural level, the same condemnation is applied to whole groups of people united by race or gender or political views or disability. And now we're condemning groups of people that don't measure up to my or our standards. We're condemning them because they don't measure up to my law, to my rule. Violence then, be it domestic or racial violence, is simply an execution of the sentence we have passed on others. We're all judging. Not all of us go as far as executing that judgment. But we're all judging. We're all passing sentences of guilt on others. Am I convincing you that condemnation is a pervasive and universal experience? Am I? Not everybody, okay. I'll, I'll do a little more work on that. Think about our culture. Why is it that in our culture, where the highest virtue is tolerance and acceptance, you need not wonder if that's the highest virtue on Friday, Supreme Court made it very clear that is the highest virtue of our culture. It's tolerance and acceptance. Why is it then, in a culture that is so overtly tolerant and accepting, we are consistently intolerant and quickly reject those who disagree with us? Why is it that if we all agree that tolerance is important, we can't show that tolerance to others? After Friday's decision, you go on social media, go on Facebook, and what do you see? If you disagree with my opinion, you can just leave. You can just stop liking my post. You can, I'm just going to unfriend you. Why? If I'm celebrating tolerance, why am I not tolerant to other people who disagree with me? Why? Because it's condemnation. We're dealing with condemnation. We're all wrestling with that. It's part of our experience. As much as we proclaim that we might be free from it, we are not. And so it plays out in relationships, in our culture. It plays out internally as you feel shame and guilt, as you struggle yourself. Condemnation is a universal experience. Do you think what happened in Charleston or Ferguson can be explained without the idea of condemnation? without the idea of judgment, without the idea of, of looking down on someone else or, or thinking that they are somehow inadequate or they are somehow problems to be eliminated. That's condemnation working itself out in racial relationships and cultural relationships and ethnic strife. Do you think therapists are not dealing with condemnation when they are treating people who are crushed by guilt, as they're counseling somebody who's, who doesn't know who they are anymore, and they're trying to find that person in there, they're dealing with condemnation. 
Do you think depression or anxiety have nothing to do with condemnation? Do you think middle school and high school students are not dealing with condemnation when they are trying to fit in and make friends? We don't call those things condemnation, of course. I mean, we we have other terms for that. But that's what it is. Those are just versions and aspects of one issue that plays itself out. Now, I'll, I'll talk about marriage and friendships and work and parenting at the end when we make application, but let me just give you one more example of how condemnation works out in in real life. Now, I went to a Ukrainian school growing up because I was in Ukraine. And and then since then, I went went to college in America, and my children are obviously going to American schools. And I've learned that, that there are differences between the two systems of education. They... They are they're very different in their approach to how you motivate a child to learn and to behave well. In Ukraine, it is shame-based. So if you are not conforming to what the teacher wants you to do, what society wants you to do, you will be shamed, often publicly. I was publicly shamed many a time. You kind of just take it that's part of your education experience. It's supposed to toughen you up. Unless it crushes you, of course. Now, in America, it's different. It's value-based. And so children are affirmed, right? That they're already valuable. They don't need to conform necessarily. They're already valuable. It's a good thing, I think, overall. So the approach is different. One is shame-based. The other one is value-based. But both systems are essentially dealing with the same reality of condemnation. One in Ukraine uses its fear, the fear of condemnation, as a whip. Conform, or you will be in trouble. You will be condemned. The other is using the promise of freedom from condemnation as a carrot. It's the same problem, approached from two different sides, but it's the same issue in the middle. And we're trying to figure out how to do that. How do we raise our children well? And we don't know. We can come, come to it from different sides, but the problem is there. We need to acknowledge that there is an issue, that it's a universal and pervasive issue of condemnation we're all dealing with. And so let's peel back a little bit and say, what is the big problem underlying all of that? Why is it that we feel guilty? Why is it that we're rejecting each other? Why is it that groups are in conflict in a particular society? Why is that? Here's the answer. Look at our text. Romans 8. Paul talks about the law of sin and death. That seems to be the source of our experience of condemnation. We are under this law of sin and death. And the righteous requirements of the law, let's say the appropriate requirements, the just requirements of the law, are not fulfilled by us, which leads to our state of being and feeling condemned. There's a law in place. Remember, we talked about using a standard, whether it's internal or relational or cultural standard. That's a standard. The reason we come up with standards is because there is a law. There is a rule. It's God's law. It's God's rule. And none of us measure up to that. And so all of us are wrestling with this reality of being condemned under God's law. 
Why do I feel guilty? Ultimately, because I am guilty before God. Ultimately. Other facets to that, but the underlying reality, my big problem is that I am condemned by God Himself. Because I can't fulfill His requirements, I cannot measure up to His standard. Why am I insecure? Because I'm not whole. I'm not a whole person. There's something missing in me. There's something wrong with me. Ultimately, because I am not connected to God the way I was designed to be connected to Him. Now, would you open your Bibles to Genesis 3? I'm not going to read it. I just want you to see it, hopefully to encourage you to look at it later in this way. Remember the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, the third chapter of the Bible. So if you go from the very beginning, the Old Testament, Genesis is the first book, and we're in the third chapter of that book. That's the moment when Adam and Eve sin. That's the moment when God's good law becomes the law of sin and death for us. Adam and Eve severed themselves from God by breaking his commandment to not eat of a particular tree in the garden. Now, do you remember what happened immediately following that? So they disobeyed, the relationship with God is broken. What happens next? Adam feels guilty. He feels ashamed. In fact, he's hiding from God, remember? And then they have to find clothes for themselves, Adam and Eve, because they feel ashamed. Do you see the connection? The law is broken. Guilt and shame follow immediately, personally, on a, on a personal, internal level. And then what happens next? God confronts Adam on his disobedience, and what does Adam do? First thing he does, he's blaming someone else. He says, that's the woman you gave me. It wasn't me. It was what you did, God. You gave me that woman. He, she messed me up. That's what he's saying. What does, what does Adam say, or what does Eve say in response? That's not me, it's the serpent. And so they're pointing fingers, they're rejecting and judging people and, and creatures around them. And then the curse comes when God pronounces a curse that is, is really just a logical implication of what happened in the garden between God and people. Now we have conflict and strife between groups of people. Now the culture is fragmented. Now we see men and women as, as gender groups warring against, against another. Then we have ethnic groups and racial groups and even people and animals are in conflict with one another. Do you see how disobedience to God's law, which severs the relationship with God, now leads to internal guilt, now leads to interpersonal condemnation, and now leads to cultural fragmentation? That's exactly what's happening today. Nothing has really changed since the garden. Because we're still sinners. We still don't measure up to God's law. And so we see it play out in our hearts. We see it play out in our relationships. And of course we see it play out in our culture. All the various problems, personal, relational, communal, come from the big problem of being condemned by God because we disobey we are not in communion with Him. We are not worshiping Him the way we're supposed to. We're not connected to Him the way we're meant to be connected to Him. What was true for Adam and Eve is true for all of us because we're all the same people, the same nature. 
We're all sinners condemned by God's law because all have sinned. No one in their right mind can claim a perfect record of life before God. Who can claim that? Who hasn't made a mistake? Who hasn't said something or done something that they themselves regret that doesn't even measure up to their own standard? Well, now we get to some good news, okay? We have to dig deep to explain the problem. We have to dig deeper to explain what the big problem behind the problem is. But now, here comes the problem solver. Look at verses 3 and 4. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What God, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law, because it works in relation to our sinful nature, cannot bring us to obedience, cannot restore our relationship with God. The problem isn't in the law. The problem is in our flesh, in the sinful nature that can't measure up to the law. Verse 4, By sending His own Son... In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God sent his son Jesus, who became a human being while still remaining perfectly God and decisively dealt with sin on our behalf so that we would no longer be under the condemnation of God's law. What we could not do, God did. That's grace. We didn't do it. We can't do it. God comes and does it through Jesus. Jesus comes as a perfect human being and as a perfect divine being, both God and man, two natures in one person. This is a very important doctrine to keep in mind. And because he is completely God, he hasn't lost any of his divinity in his humanity. That means his life is infinitely important. That means his death, his sacrifice, is infinite in its nature and is able to cover any sin, and all sin. And because He's a human being, Jesus can do something on behalf of other human beings as our representative, as our captain, as we sing in our songs, as our hero, as our champion, as our victor. He comes and He does something instead of us, lives a perfect life, that we are demanded to live, but we can't. Dies a death on our behalf that pays the penalty for all our sins. We can't do that. We can't remedy that. Jesus does that. And as He does that, condemnation is gone. What an amazing thing that God would do that for us. Grace. Not because we did it, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because God decided to help us in that way. He sends the problem solver Jesus. And Jesus changes everything on our behalf, in our place, redoing everything Adam did wrong. He undoes it. Adam in the garden disobeyed. Jesus in the garden obeyed. Adam severed his relationship at the tree. 
Jesus strengthens his relationship with us at the tree. All of those things make sense if Jesus comes as the second Adam to help us, to save us, to remedy the problem. Now we come to the big solution and to the very beginning of our chapter. Please, this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing in Romans 8 and in all of the Bible. Verse 1, There is therefore, therefore, because of the gospel, because of the problem-solving of Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Jesus, you are no longer condemned by God. This is what it means. If you're in Jesus... There is no wrath on you anymore. There is no guilty verdict on you anymore. Because you're in Jesus. <laughs> what does it mean to be in Jesus? It means to be so connected to Him by faith that His accomplishments are seen as your accomplishments. And your failures are seen as His failures. You are so united with Him that if you did something wrong, it's as if He did it wrong. And what He did right is as if you did it right. You are so connected to Him, you are one with Him, that you are as perfect as He is. Just as He was as sinful as you are on the cross, there is an exchange. Something happens when we come to Christ by faith. We get incorporated into Christ Himself and become part of Him so that all that is His is mine, all that is mine is His. Let me use two illustrations to explain this because we use this kind of language. We talk about being in Christ. We need to understand what it means. I remember eight years ago after Polly was born, Polly was just an infant, she was born, diagnosed with Down syndrome, it... it, just threw us into this world of special needs. We didn't know what to do. And I remember we went to a, uh, to a meeting with other parents in Peoria, Illinois. And we were in this hotel lobby in Peoria, Illinois, meeting with parents, talking to, to, uh, to people that have gone through a very similar experience but are farther down the road than we are, than we were at the time. And I remember sitting at a table, across the table, from the little girl named Emily as, and watching her eat french fries. She was just eating french fries. And I'm sitting there. I have an infant, infant child with Down syndrome. I'm still trying to figure out what that means. I'm sitting across the table with this little girl who also has Down syndrome and I am thoroughly enjoying watching her eat french fries because I see her in Polly. Before Polly came along, I was very uncomfortable around people with disabilities and special needs. I don't know what to say, I didn't know where to look. I'd rather just avoid them. I've excluded them. In fact, I've sort of condemned them for using this language. But when Polly came into my life, she became my daughter. Through her and in her, the whole community of people with disabilities and special needs became acceptable to me. So I could sit across the table and watch this little kid with Down syndrome eating french fries and thoroughly enjoy it. 
because she was now acceptable to me in Pali. Now fast forward two or three more years when we went to Ukraine to adopt Evangeline. Why am I so affectionate towards her? I, I, it's unusual for me, you know, right, to be affectionate. I am so affectionate towards that little girl because I see her in Polly. Because Polly came in and opened my heart to a child like Evangeline who has Down syndrome and autism and is now part of our family. How did she become part of our family? It would not have happened unless Polly came along first and changed my heart. This is what's happening when you are in Christ. God looks at you and God accepts you because He accepts Jesus. It's, it's an amazing reality and it, you can see how it works in real life. It's, it's, it's not an ethereal thing. It's, it's, it's practical. It happens like that in our life. We accept others in someone else. This union with Christ gets us acceptance with God. One pastor puts it this way. He says, when he justifies a sinner, he means this, pronounces them not guilty and accepts them, God declares that as far as he is concerned, that sinner is as righteous as his own son. When God justifies a sinner, he declares that as far as he is concerned, that sinner is as righteous as his own son. Because Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. And so his accomplishments are now given to us. So when God looks at us, he sees us in this greatly loved and greatly loving son of his. This perfect being. And because we're in him, now we get the righteousness of Christ. One more example to help us. When you get married, if you do it right, if you get married in the right way, when you give your life to the other person, they give their life to you. And you say, everything we have is now ours. We're not splitting. We don't have separate bank accounts. It's all us now. All belongs to, to us. What happens is that one person, one spouse, has now the debts of the other. If they came into the marriage with debts, the other person now assumes responsibility for them. But also, if somebody comes in with wealth, the other person gets the benefits of using that wealth for themselves. This is how Martin Luther, Martin Luther puts it. Martin Luther understood what it means to be in Christ. And when he did, what the doctrine we now call the union, union with Christ... When he understood what it means to be in Christ by faith and what it, what it does to your life, the whole Europe exploded. Because one man got it. This is what he says. Here this rich and divine bridegroom Christ marries this poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by Him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast as of her own, and which she can confidently display alongside her sins 
in the face of death and hell and say, if I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned, then all His is mine and all mine is His. This is what happens when we come to Christ by faith. We are united with Him. We are in Him as if we are married to Him. So everything good that He has is now ours. Everything bad that I have is now His and is taken care of on the cross and in the empty tomb. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled by Christ who did it in our place on our behalf, satisfied the wrath of God by His death, but also fulfilled the requirements of the law by His obedient life. Jesus never broke God's law. He fulfilled it completely on our behalf, and so now we come as obedient people to God in Christ. We come as redeemed people in Christ before God. Listen to Luther again. True Christian righteousness or the right standing before God, is the righteousness of Christ who lives in us. We must look away from our own person. Christ and my conscience must become one. Christ and my conscience must become one so that I can see nothing else but Christ crucified and raised from the dead for me. If I keep on looking at myself, I am gone, Luther says. I can't look at myself anymore. All I'm I'm going to see is sin and condemnation. But if I look at Christ and me in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation. I am no longer condemned because Christ is not condemned and I am in Him by faith. If it's hazy to you, you've got to work to understand this. If you walk away and this point isn't clear, please talk to me, talk to one of the elders. Talk to people who understand because this is the key, this is, this is the meat of the gospel. If we don't get the substitution, the exchange, the union with Christ doctrine, nothing else really clicks in life. Now, I'm going to finish by this. Let's look at practical solutions. Remember, we started with problems inside, in relationships, in the culture. That are all, we're looking at all of this under the umbrella of condemnation. Then we talked about the bigger problem that's underneath all those problems, and that's our condemnation before God because we have not obeyed His law. We talked about the problem solver, how Jesus comes into your life, and now there's no condemnation before God. So now we have to go that step up and say, what does it mean in actual life? Right? If I am not condemned by God because I'm in Christ, What does that mean when I deal with all the things that we've talked about so far? So let's walk through them. Internally, and let me say this, this is not in any way exhaustive application. I'm hoping to help us to see how the gospel works. And then you go home and you figure out how it works for you. Because we all have different lives. Some of these applications will make sense to you, and praise God if it helps you. If it doesn't help you, it doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means you have to work it out in your own life. So internally, how do we deal with the feelings of insecurity, guilt, inadequacy, and shame? 1 John 3, verses 19 and 20. Very encouraging passage. 1 John 3, 19 and 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. 
This is the key. For whenever our heart condemns us, that's guilt, insecurity, inadequacy, all of that, that's here. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Whenever my heart condemns me, and my heart calls me a loser and calls me a failure and tells me how inadequate I am and accuses me, this is me doing it to myself, I'm condemning myself, whenever that happens, I need to remember that God is greater than my heart. That God knows everything, not just what my heart is telling me, but He knows everything, and that God disagrees with my heart. God says, what you're feeling is not right. Because you're not condemned anymore. God is greater than your heart. When your heart condemns you, God says it's not right. Because in the gospel you've been set free from condemnation. And what you're telling yourself isn't true. So how do you deal with issues of guilt and, and shame and inadequacy and insecurity? You preach the gospel to yourself. You preach it with all the force you can muster up. And you say to your heart, you're not right. It's not true. God says it's not true. Because in Christ you've been set free from condemnation. God told me that. And He is greater than me. He's greater than my heart. This is how you deal with that. When you feel it, you've got to preach it to yourself. You've got to get back to what God thinks of you. In the gospel. What if the devil comes to tempt you? That happens, right? The devil is called the accuser of the brothers. His greatest weapon, his most effective weapon, is to convince you that God is a liar. Just like he did in the garden. That what God tells you isn't true. That you are a failure that you are guilty before Him, that you are condemned, that Christ did nothing for you. How, how, do you, how do you deal with that when the devil comes and accuses you in that way? Well, last time, a Luther quote, okay? This is how Martin Luther dealt with this. Luther dealt with the devil quite a bit, by the way. Very experienced Christian in that realm. This is what he says. When I awoke last night... The devil came and wanted to debate with me. Remember, Luther is a professor. Debates with the devil. He rebuked and reproached me, arguing that I was a sinner. To this I replied, Tell me something new, devil, Luther says. Luther engaged with the devil. Tell me something new, devil. I already know that perfectly well. Say, so you're not telling me anything new. Of course I'm a sinner. I have committed many a solid and real sin. Indeed, there must be good, honest sins for God to forgive for His beloved Son's sake, who took all my sins upon Him, so that now the sins I have committed are no longer mine, but belong to Christ. This wonderful gift of God I am not prepared to deny in my response to the devil, but want to acknowledge and confess. The devil comes and he says, you're a sinner. Luther says, of course I'm a sinner. But my sins have been taken care of by Christ. And I'm going to confess that. 
Because it's true. This is reality. There's no condemnation for me anymore. Because in Christ, I've been redeemed from my sins. Now, how does it work out relationally? That's internal stuff. How does it work out relationally? Let's talk about friendships for a second. The gospel frees you from people-pleasing. We all struggle with that, don't we? Well, not all. There's probably two people here who don't struggle with that, but we just don't really care <laughs> what anybody <laughs> says or thinks. But most of us, we struggle with that. If I believe that I am in Christ, if I am in Christ, if it's true, I don't need to justify myself by seeking anyone else's acceptance. I can actually pursue my friend's greatest good because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what I mean. If my concern is to make you like me, I'm going to do a lot of things that will make you like me, but it's not going to be good for you. I'm just going to go along with what you like. I'm going to please you, but I'm not going to be a very good friend. But if I believe that my justification is with Christ, I don't need to justify myself to you. My value isn't based on what you think of me. Oh, I can do some really great things in this friendship. I can really help you. I can say things that you need to hear. And I can say them in love, but I can say them because you need to hear them without worrying about your acceptance with me because I'm accepted with God. That's where my validation comes from, not from you, so I can be a good friend. How does it work out in, um, in middle school or high school? The kid's value isn't based on the acceptance of particular kids or on an inclusion in a particular clique. Middle schoolers and high schoolers. I'm turning this way instinctively, but I think there's more. You are already accepted with the most important person in the universe. If you're in Christ, God likes you. God likes you. And you've been welcomed into the best clique of all. Call it church. It's not really a clique because we keep adding people to it and we're not excluding others, but it is a clique of sorts. You're here in God's family. God loves you. You're validated by His love in Jesus. So let me free you from wearing stuff you don't want to wear to school. Don't wear those tights, please. You don't have to. You don't have to wear them because you're loved by God in Christ. Your acceptance is with Him. You don't need to worry about how you fit in because you fit in with God, because you fit in with God's people. You can be who God has made you to be around others because God loves you. How does it work in our jobs? Success and reputation are no longer the driving forces in our jobs. I am free now to use my gifts, the gifts God has given me, in the way that pleases God, in the way that fulfills me as His creation, His redeemed creation, because my accomplishments do not define my value anymore. A Christian should be able to take any job and feel absolutely fulfilled in it. 
whatever the position, whatever the responsibilities are. Because our validation doesn't come from our boss or our peers or our employees. Our validation comes from God and we already have it. We got it. Now I'm just going to work out of joy and freedom in Christ. I'm going to do things in accordance with what God has made me. And I'm going to enjoy God as I work for Him. How about marriage? Now this one is for me, okay? So you can listen in if you want, but this application is for me. Jillian is tangentially involved in this. When I'm in an argument with my wife, the gospel teaches me, if I remember, that I don't need to justify myself and prove how it's not my fault what's happening here. If I believe the gospel, I do not need to defend myself, which means I cannot get defensive, which, as it happens, happens quite a bit with me. That's because I don't remember the gospel. Because I forgot that in Christ there is no condemnation for me. Jillian is not a judge who needs to pass a good sentence on me. The judge that I really care about and the judgment of whom I really care about that really matters has already pronounced me not guilty. Now, please, I'm going to put a lot of ifs in there, okay? If I remember that, if I rest in that, I can love my wife and I can serve her by grace whether she responds or not, whether I am right or wrong. Whoever, whatever the proportion and the percentage of fault lies in that particular argument, doesn't matter because I'm not condemned. So I just let it be. I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to defend myself. And lastly, parenting. If we are in Christ and really believe that there's no condemnation for us, I don't have to parent in order to avoid public embarrassment at Walmart. (laughs) Friends, this is a powerful motivation. (laughs) There should be books written about this, really. How to parent so you don't get yelled at at Walmart. If my concern is my reputation, if my concern is that other people don't look down on me and judge me when I'm in public places with my children because they're not behaving well, I'm parenting out of fear, I'm parenting out of condemnation, I'm parenting defensively, and I'm parenting essentially for my own sake. But, what if I remember that I am in Christ, and no matter who looks down on me or who yells at me at whatever department store, if that is, if that is off the table, if, because Jesus has redeemed me and I'm in Him and there's no condemnation for me, if I remember that, I can stop and talk to my child at Walmart and minister to them and serve them and love them regardless of what it appears to look like to others. It doesn't matter. I'm going to be a much better parent because I'm going to focus on the kid. I'm going to say, what do I do for you? Regardless how foolish I look to others, it doesn't matter because there's no condemnation for me. You see, I'm not trying to validate myself. I'm not trying to justify myself with the good people at Walmart. I'm simply parenting my child the way God wants me to do it. 
Well, of course, all of that works out in our culture as well. I'm not going to take any time on this, but if I can no longer look down on anyone because I am saved in Christ, if I think I'm not a judge anymore because I've been saved by grace, because in Christ there's no condemnation for me and potentially no condemnation for anyone else who places their faith in Christ, I think that's a pretty good beginning to solve in racial tension and domestic violence and cultural issues, whatever we're dealing with. If we're coming to the table by saying, I'm not justified by belonging to a group. My acceptance with God doesn't lie in this religion or in this ethnic group or in this race or in this neighborhood. It lies in Christ, only in Christ. And so I can come to anyone as a brother, to anyone as a sister, to anyone as somebody who is potentially redeemed by Christ and has the same experience of no condemnation, and then we can connect. Then we can work together. Then we can work through our differences. It's not about being a part of a political party. It's not about being part of a race. It's not being part of a neighborhood for me. It's part of being in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, all those differences matter, but they don't become barriers anymore. More to say probably much about that at a later time. But let's conclude. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Some of you are not sure, it sounds like. (laughs) By faith, connected to Christ, having experienced His grace, there's no longer condemnation for you. If you're not in Christ, come to Christ. Come to Him by faith. Believe in Him. Believe that what He did counts for you. Unite with Him as in a spiritual marriage where you bring your failures to Him and He brings His accomplishments to you and you switch it around and now you are perfect in God's eyes because of what Christ has done for you. If you are in Christ, work out the gospel in life. Work it out. What does it mean for your parenting? What does it mean for your career? What does it mean for your relationships? What does it mean for your neighborhood and your culture? You've got to work it out. Put some work into it and reap the blessings of the good life in Christ. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who knows everything and is greater than our hearts, is greater than our relationships, is greater than our families and our church, that you have a comprehensive reality to tell us about. That if we read your scriptures and realize that what happened in the garden still is happening now and what happened on the cross and in the empty tomb is still applicable to me today, every day, that revolutionizes my life. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to work out how the gospel applies to us, to different people, different families, different races, different neighborhoods. Lord, help us. By your Holy Spirit, help us to not just be in Christ, but to feel as if we are in Christ, to act as if we are in Christ, to live in Christ, empowered by your Holy Spirit. We pray in his power, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.